Thank you. It's a joy for me to be here as well. I love this conference. And uh, this year in particular, I've been stirred and encouraged, and I hope you have too, by the theme of this conference and all the messages on truth worth dying for, the importance of firm, settled convictions. This is a theme, you know, that directly confronts and contradicts the whole spirit of the postmodern age. Uh, I've said many times that the one bedrock belief of post the postmodern worldview is that nothing is really sure and settled, and uh, no truth can be known with absolute assurance, and therefore tolerance and diversity and inclusion have become the supreme values of this generation while things like certainty and conviction are genuinely deemed uncouth and arrogant and unloving. And in fact, nothing seems more unloving in the eyes of the average person today than if you tell someone else he's wrong, particularly if he's wrong about something he believes as a bedrock of his worldview. <clears throat> but even on something so basic as the fact that there are objective differences between men and women. You have a six-foot-one muscular swimmer with a square jaw and an Adam's apple and male reproductive organs, completely male genetics, and zero female characteristics, and he's dominating women's swimming events, and there is not a single outlet, media outlet in America that will say that he's a man. He's not a woman, and they all use masculine or feminine pronouns when they write about him. It's cruel, and it's uncharitable to speak the truth about this man. That's what is believed today. There are hundreds of social and political issues that affect all of our lives that the media and others in positions of power refuse to deal with truthfully. And if you do speak the truth about any of these sacrosanct matters, you're going to be scolded, and sometimes even by fellow Christians, you will be scolded as uncharitable or overly harsh, unloving. Love and truth are commonly pitted against one another, and most of us have been influenced by, to one degree or another by the belief that love and truth simply don't play well together. The question often arises, does charity obligate me to give honor and cooperation to people who hold or who propagate false and deadly belief systems? What do I do with people like that? You're aware, I'm sure, of the current controversy surrounding a well-known and generally orthodox pastor who advised a grandmother to attend her grandson's wedding to a transgendered individual and said, even take a gift uh, out of the fear that the grandson might think that she's judgmental and uncharitable if she didn't join the celebration. However, Scripture tells us, Ephesians 4.15, that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. In fact, that's where the title of this conference comes from. Romans 12 verse 9 assures uh, us that, the, that love and truth are totally compatible. It assumes the, the compatibility. Paul writes, let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. 
So the two virtues are tied together in Scripture. Even the Apostle Peter says it as well. He writes 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a love of the brothers without hypocrisy, fervently love one another from the heart. He's assuming that love and truth are absolutely compatible. In fact, they feed one another. And my assignment in this hour is to look at the perfect compatibility that exists between love and truth. In fact, the title in, I think it's on the wall over there, says my message is, Love is Convictional, Why True Love Communicates Hard Truths. And so I want to look with you at one of the shortest books in the Bible, 2 John. Turn there with me, 2 John. This is a passage of Scripture that has always fascinated me. Its message is focused and emphatic, and it's also a very simple message, even though lots of Christians, I think, miss it. Here is the central message. I'll give you the punchline at the end, or at the beginning. This is the central message of this epistle. We who love Christ love His truth and love His people. We are not to lend aid or encouragement to people who pretend to follow Christ but oppose His teaching or despise the church for, for which He died. That is not true charity. And that includes false prophets, deceitful teachers, phony apostles, or missionaries for any kind of cult or denomination that twists the gospel of Christ. John refers to people like that as antichrist, not the antichrist, but antichristian false prophets and false teachers. In 1 John 2.18, John writes, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have appeared. So he was warning Christians, even in the early church, that there were already many deceivers who called themselves Christians while they were promoting the agenda of Antichrist. And uh, he's telling all of us we need to learn to discern who they are, and he's going to say that authentic love, genuine Christ-like love, not the sentimental notion of love that is, dominates today, but true biblical love actually forbids us to take part with people like that in their wicked works. That is the entire point of 2 John. In other words, Christian charity and the, the duties of unity and brotherhood do not demand that we show honor or hospitality indiscriminately to everyone who claims fidelity to Christ. So when someone comes peddling damnable heresy in the name of Christ, the only true and righteous and loving thing to do is to refuse them. And this is a small epistle. It's probably one page in most of your Bibles. But the, the importance of it is huge compared to its small size. It's only 13 verses total. And in fact, I think that's what intrigues me most about Second John. The apostle takes this complex and critical issue, and he deals with it in a concise compact, and yet definitive way. This is a profound piece of writing, and it gives us a, a very important epistle that is sadly sometimes neglected just because it's so brief. And in, in a few minutes, I'm going to read the whole epistle to you because it is short. Before I do, I want to point out several things that I would like you to watch for while I read. First, there are two key words that stand out in the opening verses of this this epistle. 
Love and truth are the two words. He mentions love four times in the first six verses. He mentions truth five times in the first four verses. And if you recognize those key expressions as that's the key to understanding what this epistle is about. So second, pay attention to one other word that also stands out because of its repeated use at the start of this epistle. It's the verb walk. John uses various forms of the verb to walk three times in verses four through six, and he links it with both truth and love. You have the expression walking in truth in the middle of verse four, and then verse six talks about how we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning that you should walk in it. And what is the commandment? Verse five, that you love one another. So he's saying walk in that commandment walk in love, and walk in the truth. And his point is, these are not two different paths. There are two parallel boundaries that mark the one narrow way that we as believers are supposed to stay on. And the apostle says it like this, verse 4, to walk in truth is to walk in obedience to Christ and His commandments. And also, verses 5 and 6, this is the commandment that we love one another. So all of Jesus' commandments are summarized and embodied actually in that one simple rule. When Jesus gave it to the disciples in John 13, 34, he referred to it as a new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. So the new commandment, that expression then becomes a running theme in everything the Apostle John writes. He mentions it, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, and now he reiterates it here in 2 John verse 5, and we'll look at those verses more closely before the end of the hour, but for now, just note the fact that this is the overarching comment that he wants us to, or commandment that he wants us to, to walk in, the one commandment that is most important of all, that we love one another. And all the other commandments of Christ are simply specific applications of the principle of love. Love for the truth's sake. Remember that Jesus Himself said that the first and second great commandments are both about love, love for God and love for one's neighbor. In other words, to walk in love is to walk in the commandments and vice versa. To walk in the commandments is to walk in love. And to walk in the commandments is also to walk in truth. So these are complementary and not contradictory ideas. Love and truth always go hand in hand. They do not oppose one another. And, and in fact, that fact alone, if you get that, that debunks one of the greatest falsehoods of the current postmodern generation. Far from being incompatible, truth and love are essential partners in righteousness. And the Apostle John clearly sees it as the duty of every Christian to walk in truth and walk in love. And throughout this epistle, it's as if he is emphatically refusing to portray those as conflicting duties. So watch for those themes as I read it. Here's the whole epistle, 13 verses, start to finish. And I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever, 
grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we received commandment from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard it from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. See to yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, several questions come immediately to mind. Who is this elect lady, and what does John mean when he calls himself the elder? What prompts him to deal with this topic, a question that is important to every church in every age, and yet he writes about it in a very short personal letter addressed to a singular individual and a woman, no less. There is no doubt who the author of this epistle was. One of the characteristics, you know, of John's writing is that outside the book of Revelation, he never mentions himself by name. John was a personal eyewitness to the events he recorded in his gospel. He was even a privileged member of Jesus' closest inner circle, and so he was there in person at the Transfiguration, in Gethsemane, and other places where only three or four of Jesus' closest disciples were privileged to accompany him. He was always there, and yet John chronicles the entire public ministry of Jesus without ever once mentioning himself by name. And when the flow of the narrative in the Gospel of John made it necessary for John to mention himself, he always referred to himself in the third person as another disciple or that disciple, or as he does four times in John 20 and once in John 18, the other disciple. And of course, the name that I think we best remember John for, used four times in John chapters 19 through 21, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that. So enthralled he was with the idea that Jesus loved him, that that's how he liked to refer to himself in order to keep his own name out of the narrative while he kept Jesus in the center of it. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John is the perfect disciple to write on this theme. Jesus, you know, had nicknamed John and his brother James Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. You find that in Mark 3.17. And doubtless, it was because of John's fiery zeal for the truth. You know, at first, their passion for truth wasn't always tempered by love. 
And you see a glimpse of that in John 9:54, when you remember they wanted to call down fire from heaven on a village of Samaritans who had rebuffed Christ. But in later years, John distinguished himself as the apostle of love because the theme of love always looms so large in what he writes, in his gospel and in all three of his epistles. And it's not clear whom John is writing to here or why he is sending this letter. Some think that the elect lady and her children is a cryptic reference to a single congregation. So they think it's not an individual woman, but an entire church collectively. Others have suggested maybe this is a specific woman whose actual name was Electa. I hope not for her sake. <laughs> but the most natural and the least problematic view is that he's writing to a prominent woman who was well-known throughout the church, obviously a believer, so he calls her the elect lady. And I think it's possible that she was a woman who cared for orphans, and that's why it would, that would explain the dual reference to her children. He addresses the epistle to the elect lady and her children as if the children are there at home with her. And then in verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth as if he had encountered some of her adult children in his travels and, and they're no longer living under her, her roof. So she might have had a large family of her own or she may have been someone who took in orphans. There's no way to know for sure, but these references and the theme of the whole epistle make perfect sense if we simply assume this was a prominent woman with a gift of hospitality who used her home as a stopping place and a temporary home for people from the church, believers and needy people, and that she lived in some populated crossroads or key city somewhere in the Roman Empire. Uh, that is what the epistle itself implies, that this is a generous woman who has the means and the desire to make her home and her hospitality available to missionaries and church planters and itinerant, itinerant teachers in the early church. And in fact, hosting people like that was a tangible way that she could fulfill the Lord's new commandment. And she clearly knew John personally. She no doubt had read that passage in his first epistle where he warned that Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour, that's 1 John 2.18, and he mentions then the rise of Antichrists, many of them again in verse 22, and then again in chapter 4, verse 3 of his first epistle. And uh, in fact, verse 1 of 1 John 4 makes it clear what he's describing when he calls these many antichrists. He's talking about false prophets and false teachers who apparently were traveling from church to church, and they claimed to be believers, but they were subtly and systematically undermining the faith. And that's why John says, even now many antichrists have appeared. He describes these people as gross deceivers who were scattering false teaching wherever the gospel was known. This was happening before the end of the first century. Don't, don't ever think that it's not happening today. And for someone whose ministry involved showing kindness to strangers, those were unsettling words for her to read. Many antichrists are out there. Does that mean she can no longer show hospitality indiscriminately? I mean, what, what is the loving response 
to someone who claims to be a brother in Christ but teaches the doctrine of Antichrist. And I would guess that she had probably written personally to John to ask that question, and the epistle makes perfect sense if we read it as the apostles reply to that question. It doesn't really matter who the woman is because John's ultimate audience is not her. It's not just this single individual. He clearly has more in mind than her when he writes because the second person pronouns he uses are always plural. You see it even in English in verse 8, see to yourselves, plural. The pronoun is plural. All the second person pronouns here are plural. So he obviously wants her to share this personal epistle with other people, possibly even to circulate it in multiple churches. And in fact, that is what happened with this epistle. That's undoubtedly what the Holy Spirit intended because this short epistle found its way into the canon. And that means the message of this letter applies to you and me as well. And so at the end of the day, the identity of the woman and other background details aren't what's most important about this epistle. What's most important is the message. And it's a clear message with just two points. First, verses 1 through 5, he encourages her to walk in truth by manifesting the love of Christ. And then, verses 6 through 13, he urges her to manifest the love of Christ by safeguarding the truth. And his central point is that love and truth are are perfectly symbiotic, meaning they need one another. They're not just compatible, they're essential to one another. They're symbiotic and they are inseparable. My former pastor was Warren Wiersbe, bless him, and he used to say, Love without truth is hypocrisy, and truth without love is brutality. I've often said that either virtue without its mate is merely a pretense. It's not even real. If you divorce the two, love deprived of truth quickly deteriorates into a sinful self-love, and truth divorced from love always breeds a kind of sanctimonious self-righteousness. Truth without love has no power. Love without truth has no character. And if you try to separate love from truth or vice versa, you will destroy both virtues. So let's look at these two points in the order that John makes them. First, verses 1 through 5, he's telling her, walk in truth by manifesting the love of Christ. And here's a principle to bear in mind. Even if you are on the right side of some controversial moral or political principle, If your public discourse is always angry and mean-spirited and motivated by sheer contempt or bitter loathing or personal pride, you're actually making a mockery of the truth. Tom did a great job of making this point last night. To declare a truth, even a, especially a partial truth, in an unloving way and or with an unloving evil motive it's frankly, that's an assault on the truth. You remember that scene in Acts 16 in Philippi, where Luke says to Paul and his missionary team, Luke says that, that Paul and his missionary team were going to the place of prayer, he says, and a, a servant girl having a spirit of divination met them. And Luke says, 
She was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. He writes, following after Paul and, and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And he says, she continued doing this for many days. But being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her. Now think about this. Everything she said was true. These men were slaves of the Most High God. They were proclaiming the way of salvation. That's all true. So why did Paul silence her? I'll tell you why. Because in the mouth of a demon, even the truth is a blasphemy and an embarrassment. It's never good when some wantonly evil person pretends to be a proclaimer of gospel truth. And it's even worse when the message is given in a spirit of hatred or arrogance or contempt for one's neighbors. Those attitudes are actually the fruits of falsehood and human pride, and they have nothing whatsoever to do with truth. In fact, the singular most distinctive fruit of truth is love, compassionate love, brotherly love, humble, warm-hearted, self-giving love, the kind of love that's embodied in the sacrifice of Christ. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So love is therefore the supreme test of whether we are really walking in the truth. 1 John 2, verses 10 and 11, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness blinded his eyes. 1 John 3, 14 and 15, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And 1 John 4, 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The truth is not in you at all if there's no love in you. So love is the fruit and the evidence that we are truly walking in the light. And John makes that very point in the opening verses of this second epistle. He writes to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. He links those together as quickly as possible. I read a few commentators who, who discussed whether, what, what kind of love is this, whether maybe this is a widow with whom the elder John actually had a romantic relationship. I think it's obvious that's not the case because there's nothing sensual or romantic about the love he expresses towards her. And in fact, he makes a point of saying that this woman and her children are beloved by everyone who knows the truth. Verses 1 and 2, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Trace that sentence, the logic of it. He's saying, we love her for the sake of the truth. And so he's saying his and everyone else's love for this woman is a love that is rooted in and flows from truth, specifically the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. And that, I think, is a deliberately ambiguous expression. What is the truth 
that abides in us and will be with us forever. That embodies, I believe, purposely both the truth of Scripture and the indwelling Spirit of Christ. Christ Himself, you know, is the way, the truth, and the life. He's truth incarnate, John 14, 6. He is in us and with us forever. But that expression, the truth which abides in us, I think surely also includes the truth of Scripture, God's Word in written form, because it's the Word of Christ that dwells in us richly in Colossians 3.16. So, truth indwells every true believer in the person of Christ and in our knowledge and understanding of Scripture. And if the truth genuinely indwells you, then the primary fruit it produces will be love. And anyone who genuinely loves the truth of God will also love the people of God, because love itself is the very pinnacle of divine truth. The one who does not love does not know God. And 1 John 4:11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so John says to this woman, I and all who love the truth love you because of the truth, for the truth's sake. And repeatedly, deliberately, in those opening verses, he keeps tying the words love and truth together. Far from seeing these as adversarial concepts, John steadfastly refuses to acknowledge the existence of one apart from the other. You can't have love without truth, and you can't have truth without love. Love without truth is not love at all. It's a sinful sentimentality. It's a mushy, mawkish, idolatrous form of self-exaltation. It's what most of the world means when they speak of love these days. And as we've seen, truth divorced from love is just a half-truth. It's a thinly disguised devilish lie. The very notion of truth without love is about as far from biblical truth as it's possible to get. And John is encouraging this woman to keep that perspective in view. He reminds her that Jesus gave us this solemn new commandment that we love one another. If you love truth, you have to, you have to obey Christ's commandment, and the most important of all His commandments is this, love. Now, we call it a new commandment. He refers to it as a new commandment. How is this a new commandment? Because it's really just a restatement of the second great commandment, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and that's Leviticus 19.18. It's quoted and reiterated seven times in the New Testament, but it's an old commandment out of Leviticus. It's a summary of the second table of the law, which spells out several duties that we have with regard to our neighbors. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And don't covet your neighbor's house or wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So you can break it down in specifics like the Ten Commandments does, or the 613 individual commandments of Moses' law. Break it down even further. But if you simply take a bird's-eye view of the law, in the words of Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or Romans 13, verse 8, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. 
And then Paul goes on to affirm the, the same point I just made, Romans 13, 9. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, Paul says, it is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love was the whole point of the law in the first place. So how is this a new commandment? Jesus himself referred to it as a new commandment, John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what's he saying? I think it's this. The commandment is new in the sense that Jesus is renewing it, he's restating it, he's releasing it in a new and fresh edition, teaching us to give it a new place of prominence in our thinking. And this is a new covenant, a new commandment, because this time the commandment to love one another actually comes complete with a new and perfect example to follow. Love one another just as I have loved you. That's how you are to love one another. That's what authentic love looks like. That is a kind of stark clarity embodied in a, a whole new living example. That's actually a new feature. So that's how it's a new commandment, but it's also an old commandment, the same one we've heard from the beginning. And John himself notices that old new paradox in 1 John 2, verse 7, he writes, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. And then in the very next verse, he adds, On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. So his point is the same as mine. It is both an old and new commandment. And in 1 John 2, after he makes that point, the apostle goes on to urge them to love the brethren to guard the truth, and to walk in obedience. And he seems to pick up those very same threads of thought here in 2 John, which is why I think 2 John is probably prompted by questions this lady had asked him after she read his first epistle. She seems confused about how to apply both love and truth in proper balance, which takes the priority. If there, if there seems to be a, comp, a, a comp, conflict, which is the priority? Is it love for the brethren or devotion to the truth? Which comes first? And specifically, she's asking, what is the loving thing to do when someone who professes to love Christ comes, but he, he's proclaiming a different doctrine, a doctrine that is at odds with the apostolic message. What does love demand when we're dealing with false teachers and heretics and people who sin wantonly? What does love demand there? What is the loving thing to do when an itinerant preacher seeks affirmation and hospitality, but he has a different version of the gospel? What do you do? And John's answer to that question begins with this affirmation of the new commandment. So he's greeted her and his, her children, verse 1. He's pronounced a blessing on her, verse 3. He's encouraged her by reporting that when he met some of her children, they were walking in the truth, verse 4. And in all of that, he's repeatedly and I think purposefully keeping the twin values of love and truth linked inseparably together. And so now, 
he addresses the main issue about which he is writing, most likely, again, to answer a specific question that she had posed to him. And his first point is a reminder that truth, God's truth, the unchanging eternal truth, compels us to love. And he makes that point by reminding her of the new commandment. In fact, he reminds her how old the new commandment is, verse 5. Now, I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which you have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And he's saying this, to walk in the truth is to demonstrate the love of Christ. That's how you walk in the truth. Love and truth are not competing or contradictory virtues. They are necessarily bound together. Truth is the foundation of love, and love is the fulfillment of the truth. And he makes both of those points in these first four verses. When he says in verses 1 and 2 that the church's love for this lady is because of the truth that abides in us, he's saying that truth is the ground and foundation of love. And then when he points out, as he does in verses 3 through 5, that love is what God's truth demands of us, he's saying that love is the fruit and fulfillment of truth. Now, if truth is the ground and foundation of love, and love is the fruit and fulfillment of truth, then there is no way to prioritize love over truth or vice versa because they both define and comprise each other. To walk in truth is to love. To fail in the duties of love is to advance the, uh, the agenda of the enemies of truth. There is no truth in you if your heart is devoid of God's love. So truth is the flame of the indwelling Spirit of Christ giving light to our minds, while love is the corresponding heat that gives warmth to our hearts. And therefore, wherever the warmth of love is missing, you can be sure that the light of truth isn't functioning properly either, and vice versa. So that's his starting point, and he affirms the essential duty of love by echoing Jesus' new commandment, the same old commandment that we've heard from the beginning, that we love one another. Walk in truth by manifesting the love of Christ. That's his first point. And he moves quickly to the second point, and here he gets intensely practical. There's almost a a change in tone in the epistle as you read it. This, I believe, the remainder of the epistle is the specific answer to the main question she had raised. Here is the proper balance between truth and love. He has just urged her to walk in truth by manifesting the love of Christ. Now, he says, we also have a duty to manifest the love of Christ by safeguarding the truth. And it turns out that the gist of this letter, the main point he wants to get across, is the duty that falls on our shoulders as believers who embody the love of Christ to hold fast to the truth and defend it against every assault. Verse 6, and this is love. So here is what real love looks like, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning, that you should walk in it. In other words, what the world refers to as love isn't necessarily love, because if it's true love, it comes with a built-in devotion to the truth. That's real love. That's the character of real love. In the words of 1 John 4, 7, love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 
If you don't know God, you're not capable of authentic love. You can, you can have a sentiment that bears some resemblance to love, but it isn't real love unless it's rooted in truth. And so all of this presupposes a biblical definition of love, which always includes an unwavering love for the truth. Now, this is a warm and affectionate letter. He's encouraged this woman. He's commended her. He's expressed his esteem for her. He's blessed her. But he also has some stern words of caution. It's not that he's expressing any kind of disfavor or dissatisfaction with her personally. He's not scolding her here. His attitude towards her is nothing but warm and amiable. But he has these urgent words of caution about this imminent threat to the church. And so, starting in verse 7, he shifts gears. He changes tones, takes a more ominous tone from here on, and he gives her a sharp warning about the danger that's looming. False teachers were infiltrating the church. They came in the name of Christ, but they brought a totally different doctrine. Specifically, the movement John is concerned with in this context is a a budding cult of false teachers who apparently denied the incarnation. Verse 7, they do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So they were denying some aspect of the, the incarnation of Christ. And the way he says it, that they denied Christ's coming in the flesh, suggests that the heart of their error is a denial of the true humanity of Christ. And in fact, church history suggests that these were early Gnostics. These were people whose interest in Christianity was philosophical and mystical, but not biblical. Their central doctrine is known as Docetism, which is a view that denied the reality of Christ's human nature. They said His body was just a phantasm or an illusion. He wasn't truly human. Their beliefs, you know, were rooted in a false Gnostic dualism, the belief that only, only spiritual reality can, has to be, can't be material in any way, that spiritual reality is truly good, but matter, you know, the things you can touch and see and all that are inherently evil. So it was a spirit versus matter dualism. They believed that spirit and matter are inherently hostile to one another, so God could never literally take on human flesh. Some of them taught that Christ's body was composed of some kind of celestial substance, uh, so that wasn't truly human. All of them taught that Jesus only appeared to be human. Most of them went so far as to claim that His sufferings weren't even real. And all of it was a disa- just a dastardly lie. It undermined the, the biblical doctrine of the atonement. It destroyed the gospel. Docetism was just beginning to gain popularity when John wrote this. And in fact, from the second century on, various strains of docetic Gnosticism ravaged the church, and it thwarted the advance of the gospel. It confused people, left multitudes in confusion. And John saw the danger of it from the outset, and that explains the urgency of this warning. It's a great lesson in how to deal with false teachers who twist the truth about Christ and by doing that undermine the gospel. And so let me just say, the apostolic approach is the polar opposite of what you see today, you know, where people invite a, will invite a heretic into their 
classroom or put them on the platform of their conference and, and try to find some kind of friendly common ground. And then you try to pass that sort of showy public relations campaign off as true Christian unity. But John's counsel to this woman forbids that, and it has two parts. Hold fast to the truth, verses 6 through 9, and reject those who don't love the truth, verses 10 through 11, or 10 through 12. Now, there are many false teachers out there, John says, verse 7, said the same thing in his first epistle, 1 John 4, 1, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the landscape was covered with phony religious leaders. And he's saying to her, don't be fooled by them. Don't naively accept them into your fellowship. And if that was already true before the end of the apostolic era, it's a thousand times more true today. He's not talking about what you should do when someone who has a different opinion about church polity or the mode of baptism comes around. He's talking about how to deal with deceivers who profess faith in Christ, but they twist some vital Christian doctrine into something that's completely different. And that, John says, is what epitomizes the spirit of Antichrist. And he he wants this woman and everyone who reads the epistle to be on guard and to hold fast to the truth they have been taught through the gospel. Verse 8, see to yourselves, plural, that you do not lose what we accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. So he's saying a lot is at stake here, and God will hold us accountable for how we respond to false teachers. We'll be rewarded accordingly. You know, I tire of hearing people who think they're hearing from people who think that there's something noble about treating false teachers with honor and undue respect or even with indifference, you know, just ignore them. I'm just going to preach what I believe and let God worry about the heretics. If that's really what you believe, then that, you know, when false teachers come in Christ's name, you have no duty to confront or expose or refute their error, then you are partly culpable for the damage that they do. And John himself says so in verse 11, the one who even gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. You'll often hear people say, well, it's not really our business to make judgment about uh, who is in and who is out in the kingdom of God. Everyone who names the name of Christ, I'm just going to treat them as brothers and sisters. And in recent years, there has been a parade of supposedly evangelical, and you know, we had the emergent movement, which was full of people like this, who have tried to make the argument that Practically anyone from almost any religion is a fellow believer as long as, as long as they're sincere and nice. And they say we have a duty then to embrace everyone as a brother or sister who self-identifies as a Christian, to question whether a professing Christian is really an authentic believer or not. They say that's the very height of arrogant incivility. But the, the apostle definitively says otherwise. Verse 9 Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Now, that expression, the teaching of Christ, refers specifically to gospel truth as it was received from Christ and declared by the apostle, 
Uh, to quote John Gill, the Baptist commentator, he says, the teaching of Christ is the doctrine that is appointed to guide us to God. It is that whereby God draws souls to salvation and to himself. Those who revolt from this doctrine revolt from God. So that's the heart of it, the gospel. Paul basically says the same thing in Galatians 1, as we've heard already this week, where he pronounces a double curse on anyone who comes with a different gospel. Now, the boundaries of apostolic orthodoxy were clearly and finely drawn. In Galatians 1, you have where Paul calls down curses on the false teachers who were making circumcision the instrument of justification rather than simple faith alone. And he, of course, applies that curse, that double curse to anyone who comes with a different gospel. Here, John is expressly writing off people who want to be recognized as Christian leaders, but they are denying either the deity or the preexistence or the incarnation of Christ. And those two intertwined categories of gospel doctrine, the principle of justification by faith on the one hand and the incarnation of Christ on the other, those two categories are crucial. You can't monkey with them. And in, and, and in fact, those two categories still don't really constitute a complete and comprehensive list of Christian truths that are of first importance. Paul also lists the historical facts of Christ's death and resurrection in the category of things of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. But those are, I believe, Scripture's giving us examples to give us a pretty clear rule of thumb that this, any false doctrine that sets forth another gospel or a different Jesus, that is damnable heresy. And what John is saying in verse 9 is that anyone who teaches that kind of damnable heresy is not to be embraced as a fellow Christian. Such a person, he says, does not have God, and he says it definitively. There's really no room for nuance here. So let me speak frankly. Visible Christianity in our generation, including the multitudes who are part of the broad movement that would label itself evangelical, the, the big visible evangelical movement, I believe, is chock full of people who have seriously transgressed the teaching of Christ. You see a lineup of them on Christian television every night. Some of them teach a completely different gospel. They've been swept up in some new perspective, or they teach a prosperity message, or, or they've gone on a quest for a political notion of social justice rather than redemption from the guilt of sin. Some of them deny the exclusivity of Christ, or they repudiate the authority of Scripture, or they question the deity and incarnation of Christ, or their answer to humanity's sin problem is therapy rather than atonement. Some of them preach the prosperity gospel rather than repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Nearly all of them preach themselves rather than Christ Jesus as Lord. And yet, they would self-identify as evangelical. They claim to be gospel believers. The church is full of all of those varieties of false prophets and deceivers. And what does John say is the proper response to that? Here's a woman who apparently her gift is hospitality. Her home is a guest house for itinerant teachers and preachers and evangelists. How should she respond when proclaimers of deviant doctrines 
seek hospitality in her home? How should any Christian respond when someone who breaches the boundaries of basic Christian orthodoxy is seeking partnership or honor or recognition or financial help for their religious work? What if a Mormon missionary or a Jehovah's Witness just wants to sit down with you and show you what they believe? What do you do? And John's answer is not ambiguous. Verses 10 and 11, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. There is no mincing of words here. He instructs the woman to withhold, purposely withhold hospitality and honor from anyone who denies essentials of the Christian faith but professes to be a Christian. He's not talking about how we deal with just the average pagan unbeliever. You can show them hospitality. When somebody comes in the name of Christ with a false doctrine, what do you do? And what John tells her is that she is not to open her home to them, neither is she to show them any kind of kindness or bestow on them any tribute that might encourage them in their evil mission. That's his whole point. He's not telling her, be rude to them. He's not saying, slam the door in their faces and, and you know, pronounce a curse on them or anything like that. He's simply saying, don't show them anything that would encourage them and don't give them anything that would help them in their endeavor. This is predominantly about partnership and fellowship in ministry. And the greeting that he's talking about here is a formal way of showing honor. He's not telling her to be rude or ungracious. He's simply saying the best way to show love to a false teacher is to make it clear that the doctrine he's peddling is deadly and you don't want any part of it. Don't offer them any encouragement or honor or even hospitality. Now, lots of people in these postmodern times will tell you that is rude. That's inherently rude. You tell someone else they're wrong. You have no right to do that. But that's actually, think about this, that's no more rude than if I offered you a heavy dose of strychnine instead of cream for your coffee. The loving thing for you to do would be not only to decline and recoil in horror, but if you really are full of love, you would urge me not to put any of that in my coffee either. In other words, this is what love demands careful discernment, and a clear warning against false teaching, plus a firm refusal in any way to have fellowship with or be unequally yoked with or enter into partnership with people who are purveyors of some soul-destroying error. In the words of Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what love demands of us. If we love the truth, we will oppose error. If we truly want to manifest the love of Christ in a Christ-like way, we'll safeguard the truth. Verse 12, he has more to say to her, but he'll wait till they meet face to face, which signifies that what he says in this epistle is urgent and highly important. And since he uses those plural pronouns, we know it's important for us as well. That's the simple truth of this epistle. It's purposely short and to the point. Love and truth, that is genuine love and unadulterated truth, work together. They are not in opposition to one another. 
We're not walking in truth unless we're manifesting the love of Christ, and we're not manifesting the love of Christ unless we are safeguarding the truth. May we learn what it means to ground our love in the truth, and may we not succumb to the pressure of our age to spurn or to subjugate Christ's truth under a false and foggy notion of love. Let's pray. Father, in the words of Romans 5, 5, your love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we pray, Lord, increase our love. Increase our love for you. Magnify our love for Christ. Enlarge our love for the truth. And give us more love for one another. Give us a wise and loving sense of discernment. And give us courage to stand for the truth in a culture that hates the truth. And may our love and our devotion to the truth honor Christ in the eyes of an unbelieving world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.